Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 106, archived edition. Today's guest is Matt Seabrook. Matt was one of my very first interviews. We sat down in the spring of 2021, just when the pandemic was slowly starting to calm down. People and small businesses were getting back to work. Matt is an entrepreneur. Matt owned a chain of physical therapy locations in the Philadelphia area. He is a fantastic physical therapist. Matt tells an amazing story of grit, determination of the time when his oldest child was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder called Herdler syndrome. He tells the story of how the family dealt with it, of the uncertainty of the trying times that it led to professionally and personally, all the way through watching his son walk down the aisle to get his college degree. Just an amazing story of grit, drive, determination. Matt also shares what it's like leading a small business through a global pandemic, the lessons he learned through the pandemic that actually made his business stronger and better. We discussed leadership. We discuss books that influenced his life, how he approaches his business, his family, and how he just keeps everything moving in a positive direction. It is a fun conversation with a family man, a business leader, an entrepreneur at the top of their game. So much wisdom and life knowledge that you could tease out of this and transfer to your everyday life. So I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, hit that follow button. Better yet, share this with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Matt Seabrook, physical therapist, entrepreneur, family man, and all around amazing person. And remember, life is built, not born. Matt Seabrook, welcome to the show. Joe, thanks for having me. It was awesome to be on. For those who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Professionally, I'm a physical therapist. I've been a PT for about 27 years now, which is amazing to think. It's gone quickly. But the last 20 years, I've been a business owner. I have a couple of private practices in the suburban Philadelphia area. That's professionally what I do. Personally, I'm the father of three awesome kids and I have an amazing wife, Chris, of 23 years. And really, as you get older, you realize that should be in. And maybe in the beginning of my business, I spent a lot of time on the business. Now I've definitely in the last several years really started to shift focus and you spend more time where it really should be prioritized, which was with your family. So that's me. Grew up in Abington, went to Abington High School. It's a great town to grow up in and then off to Ithaca College for, for my PT work. Think back to say 10 years old. What was it like around the dinner table for you at 10? Who was there? What was going on? Yeah, I grew up the youngest of four, and I was probably like my nearest sibling was probably six, seven years older than me. By the time I was 10, honestly, I, I was almost becoming an only child at that point. My my brother had long since moved out, and he was probably cross-country in Arizona by then. My sister had moved out. My other sister was about to go off to college. I had a great relationship with my siblings, and I had lots of great friends in the area, and, and, and got to... Uh, 
spend probably at the time I would have said, especially in your teenage years, more time with your parents than you might have wanted to. <laughs> but uh, but they were great. I had a great upbringing and a really uh, happy, well balanced childhood. So I'm thankful for that. Looking back, what's the most vivid memory of your childhood? That's an intriguing question. That could go a number of ways. As I reflect back, I really, I feel fortunate. I had two great parents. I had some great friends growing up. I had, I was taught the right things, values and ethics, and I was just given a really good foundation to live the rest of my life off of. So that's, that probably, as I reflect back, is what I am most appreciative of. And of course, you have all sorts of funny family memories of trips we spent. My parents uh, were fortunate they were able to take us all on many trips. We're fortunate to see the world a little bit and have a, a greater perspective as well. I feel fortunate. What's the best trip you went on with your family? One that I really reflect um, back on is we spent, now we had a, a big extended family, had many aunts and uncles that really weren't my aunts and uncles, but it was just <laughs> a large extended group. And so we took a houseboat trip on Lake Powell. Yeah. So, which is the red rock of Arizona. I think it's between Arizona and Utah. And uh, it was like, oh, we had three houseboats. We each had 12 to 14 people on it. And you'd sail during the day and you'd dock at night. And what great memories of big family gatherings. So, you know, that one uh, sticks out in my memory. How did you decide to go to Ithaca, of all the places to go to? How did you, how'd you yeah. decide to land up at Ithaca College? You're in high school. What do you know? Some people have known since they're 10 what they want to be when they grow up. <laughs> I was not that kid. I was I was definitely interested in physical therapy. Of course, as you look at colleges, almost all of them that I looked at were PT schools. And then I finally narrowed it down to either Ithaca or Boston College for business. And I remember, remember my dad just saying, business, there's a million business schools. You can always decide you don't like PT and then go back into business, but it, it would be a little bit harder to start a business and then try to get back into PT school. So he goes, why don't you follow your first thought of what your passion would be. And it was great advice. And I, why did I choose Ithaca? I fell in love with the area. It's beautiful up there. The campus is beautiful. The surrounding lakes were beautiful. The vineyards around the area just had probably just the perfect weather that day, which plays, plays a big role when you're choosing a college and you do a campus tour and you go, wow, this place is beautiful. And you could see yourself there. And I had a great four years and, and loved every minute of it. How did you decide of everything you could be? How did you land on physical therapy? I'll tell you, I had probably two or three different injuries in high school from sports, mostly soccer. And so I was a patient two or three different times. And so that was, that piqued my interest. You know, I really enjoyed that process of getting to know the PT and then pushing you, getting you back to your full state of health and function. And then we had some high school opportunities as well to do some internships. And so two or three days a week, I remember leaving high school early instead of having study halls. And I volunteered at Temple Sports Medicine, which was right around the corner and got some really great experience and really got a more hands-on approach to what that career might look like for me. Between being a patient of some minor and also one major serious injury, but also just seeing it as an intern, it really helped solidify that I really thought that's what I wanted to do with my life. Could you share, what was, you said there was one serious injury. What was that? How'd that happen? Yeah, so soccer-related injury, I ended up, gosh, I guess I was about uh, 17, 18 years old, and the goalie came out. It was like a freezing, cold, raining day, and the goalie comes out, and my, and my foot's planted in the mud, and I chip a ball over him, and I score, by the way. I just thought I should mention that. <laughs> Crashes into my leg, and it shattered, 
into after the fact about a dozen different pieces. They heard it from all, and I had shin guards on, they heard it from at the other end of the field. Parents weren't there. So long story short, they got me off the field, laid me on the ground for the entire second half and overtime. It's free, it's snowing. And I think I'm in shock at that point, <laughs> literally. And then the hour and a half drive home from Delaware till I got to the emergency room. I'm quite fortunate not to have lost my leg, to be honest with you, because that happens. And I had a ton of swelling. So I had surgery. They put rods in my legs. And that took probably close to a year and a half for all the fractures to actually heal. A simple fracture would take six, eight weeks. So this was a year and a half later, finally, all my breaks, all those fracture lines had healed. Definitely no urgency to bring you to the ER, huh? Yeah, yeah. We laugh about it. A couple of guys that I'm still friends with today laugh. (laughs) Remember that ride home and my dad would go over the train tracks too fast and I'm in the back like screaming in agony. And my friends at the time were... They thought it was funny. <laughs> they, they, they stop for lunch on the way home. A nice long leisurely lunch, sure. So you go through PT out of curiosity. Where are you now? Is it, can you feel the injury still, or are you all healed? For the most part, no. I definitely have some nerve damage in my foot and in my big toe. I have so I have some issues. I'll probably be dealing with the, but nothing major. I feel very fortunate. I can do whatever I want to do. It all worked out after months of PT. Yeah, so. I was up close and personal, got to see how it actually, how people I saw from the other end of a serious injury. And that was valuable for me early on in my career in terms of having a really deep sense of empathy for what people are going through. That's the word I was about to bring up because there's so many physicians and therapists that have the knowledge and the research, and they could tell you some rare disease in four seconds, but the bedside manner is just horrendous. But when you have that physician or, or that therapist who's dialed in and knows the research at the top of their game, and they throw the empathetic side where they feel with you and they understand what you're going through, that just changes the game. It really yeah, does. It does make a difference. It, you're caring for somebody's physical health, but if you can, through your personality or your empathy, uh, your listening skills, really connect with that person on a deeper level. You just, you bring their spiritual, mental health right along with, and the two are intertwined. If you can find a healthcare practitioner, and I think PTs generally are people persons, mm-hmm. um, boy, that makes such a big difference in someone's uh, experience and, and in there. You got to go through something terrible. You might as well enjoy it along the ride if you can with the person that's tasked with bringing you to full health. You graduate with your degree in physical therapy from Ithaca. What's your work life look like when you get out? First job I took, I was at Abington Hospital. So I was a staff PT there. We had a large staff, probably 20 to 25 PT. So it was a great learning experience. And you'd rotate every four to six months into a different area. So you might do inpatient care, and then you might do outpatient care. Then you might do acute rehab. Then you might do neuro rehab. So you really got a really good, for me now in, in outpatient therapy, that was a great base. I could see people at the beginning of their situation so that I would have a better appreciation later on down the line what they had been through by the time they reached me in an outpatient clinic. From there, Joe, I left Abington Hospital for two or three years and worked for a small private practice that swore up and down they would never sell out to a corporation. And so six months later, they sold out to a corporation, which was not how I envisioned my future. So I worked for a big outpatient PT corporation that shall go unnamed for several years and learned a lot of great things, a lot of great people. Also took great notes in terms of, hey, if I was ever going to do this on my own, not do. Mm -hmm. 
and and so it was a valuable experience in in, in both ways. What I learned business wise and management style and that sort of thing, but also what not to do was equally as valuable. There's a great Steve Jobs line. One of the books that really influenced me. I read Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs. Yeah, all his yeah. books are magic. That one just uh, Jobs really hit with me because like he's actually making products that I use. Like I was re- listening to it on the iPhone. I, I ordered it on my MacBook. Mm-hmm. It really was real for me. Like I read his one on Leonardo da Vinci, which was amazing. But Jobs was creating stuff that I was holding in my hand as I was reading it. But right. Jobs is such a great line. I tell this to my kids all the time. Here's a line is they asked Steve Jobs toward the end of his tenure at Apple, right? But maybe a few years before he died, they asked him, what's your biggest accomplishment at Apple? What are you most proud of? And Jobs told the person, I'm I'm most proud of what we did not do. Huh, yeah. uh, what we didn't do gave us the space and bandwidth and yeah. energy and money to do what we needed to do. And it did, we didn't lose focus on what not to do. Yeah, and that's a lesson for in your personal life too. What you do and what you don't do make makes a difference and may lead you in a different path in your life. Yeah, for sure. That's a great quote. Your not to-do list is probably more important than your to-do list. So you work for the big corporation, not not to be named. You said you knew this wasn't for you long-term, but you were taking yeah. good notes. Yeah. Could you remember the moment where you went into the clinic, an employee of a big corporation, and then you walked out an entrepreneur? Uh, oh yeah, it's absolutely sticks out in my mind. My oldest son, Tyler, right? So Tyler's- through and we can get into it a little bit or a lot of it. But so Tyler's 22, just graduated from Cabrini University. As a little kid, he was born with a rare genetic disorder. So I'll make an extremely long story short. Tyler went through bone marrow transplants, chemo, radiation, all sorts of probably a dozen different surgeries, right? So, and he was our firstborn. So I'm dealing with trying to figure out what's wrong with my child in that first year of life, we were really struggling. He was not doing well. We couldn't figure it out. He hadn't been diagnosed. Long story, again, made short. We finally figure out what it is. It's a rare uh, genetic disorder called Hurler syndrome. And the only cure for it's a bone marrow transplant at that point. And so fellow employees of mine, while I was working for this corporation, knew that like where we decided to go was halfway across the country out to University of Minnesota. That's where the world leading expert was for his disease and the bone marrow transplant process. Interviewed the doctor, loved him. We're like, this is where we have to go. So fellow employees kicked in all of their, like a ton of paid time off for me to go do that. Wow. And the corporation would not allow that. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, that left a mark. So I back after three or four months of being out in Minnesota, we go through a rough process and quite honestly, the first bone marrow transplant failed. So we were coming home knowing like we had to do this all over again. And it's my first week back in work in the Philly market. And boss calls me into the office like the first couple of days back to work and I get a hefty pay cut. <laughs> so it was like, oh, okay, here we go. I am already, I had not even gotten out of the door from that meeting. I was like, oh, I'm done, baby. It's on. What I was going to do, I just didn't know how I was going to do it. Um, And that sealed the deal. I was like, no more. (laughs) So it was, uh, yeah, it was startling, but it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Wow. 
First mm. off, thank you for sharing that. Just yeah. came back. What was that like? I know what I was like in my head when my oldest maybe fell and hit his head against, he was a jumper. He had, fell and hit his head against the table. Like he would jump from couch to couch and, and we would go to Abington to get like some glue over his eyelid when he was a year old or two years old. What was it like realizing that you're up against like your firstborn, you're so excited, you're a new parent. Then all of a sudden you're dealing with a, a rare genetic disorder. What's going through your mind? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, you're right. You're a new parent. Like you're, what do you know, right? You're a year into this, and so it's devastating because the prognosis of that disease is most kids would not live to five years old. So you're left with, okay, I'm going to put my kid through what exactly? And you were just trying to figure out what's a bone marrow transplant, or chemo, and the radiation. So pretty devastating, and but within. Yeah, it was a pretty devastating week, but probably we got our sea legs after a week, my wife and I, and you're doing your research and you figure out what you're going to do and you come up with your game plan and you do it. But to be honest, yeah, that was that's definitely the most challenging thing I've been through in my life, going through that whole process of the bone marrow transplants times two and all the chemo and the radiation and the hospitalization and the immunosuppression and the managing doctors and nurses. And just like we were on guard constantly for the, like, to be honest, the medical mistake that could end it all. We felt like we were both, my wife's an OT by background. So we both had some medical training enough to at least be really good advocates in a hospital system, which we were in for months with all of this care. And you're in a 10 by 15 room and like people are coming in with gowns on, masks on before masks were cool uh, like they are now. And if he dropped one of his toys, remember he's two years old now at this point, if he dropped a block on the floor, we had to pick it up and clean it. Like anybody coming in or going out had to be like, so it was an extreme immunosuppressed state with all the stuff he was going through. And that went on for weeks and months. And here he is on the other end, amazing story, graduating from college. But yeah, that was quite an experience for Chris and I and Tyler. Can't imagine. Here we are. He just graduated college a few weeks ago. Just incredible. You said the prognosis was the average person didn't live to five. What point did you realize he's, we're going to beat this? Like, what point do you go, wow, my gosh, he's going to be an adult. He's going to be a teenager. Like, what point did you realize that's going to happen? Yeah, yeah. That That's great. I don't know the answer to that. I think... Once he got through the, the successful bone marrow transplant, you're still, he would still be seen by a dozen different specialists two, three, four times a year for the next decade. And he still sees specialists, but fewer and fewer. So it, it was always a process of, because you can have late effects of chemo and radiation. So we're still on the lookout for something medical that could crop up from his early days. But probably when he got five, seven years out from his bone marrow transplant, you did you know, that survivorship, like, okay, we made it. We might have other challenges to come, no doubt, but we made it and we got through the storm. That's awesome. First off, you guys are ballers. He's a baller. Tyler's a baller. Unbelievable. You guys went through and walked out the other side and holding a college degree. So that's phenomenal. Yeah. Congratulations. Shifting gears a bit. So you got to the point where you said where the HR department basically wouldn't, your colleagues who wanted to voluntarily share a PTO with you, you go out and, you know, save your son's life basically. And they said, and, and on top of that, they gave you a pay cut. So you said it's on. So walk us through that point when it was on, what happened? Yeah. And I just knew I had always wanted to go out and start my own uh, private practice. I had probably known that for years, just, just trying to gain the experience and quite frankly, the courage to go out and do it. And this was just that 
kick in the tail that really lit my fire and started figuring out how I was going to do it, where I was going to do it, the nuts and bolts of it, how I was going to fund it, knowing full I didn't know everything, but that I had a really good foundation and I could figure out the rest. And I joke around, but it's somewhat true. That Seinfeld episode where George does the opposite. He's, so he's, I'm going to, but he's, I'm going to do instead of chicken salad on wheat, I'm going to do tuna salad on rye or however. That's what I did. I was like, here's what this corporation does. I'm going to do the opposite the exact opposite of everything they do from how they take care of the patient, how they honor their employees, and I'll be fine. And you know what? It worked out for me. It's more complex than that, but at the simplest, I was like, I'm just going to do the opposite. And it worked out. You open, when did you open up? What, yeah. what was your first physical therapy clinic? Where was it? Yeah, so first I- one is I uh, was right in the area we live in. So it was right in the Dreshertown Plaza and it's a tiny little space. And uh, so I named it Dresher Physical Therapy because it's in the town of Dresher. Very creative. <laughs> 200 square foot space with like one window. And uh, man, we survived there for seven, eight years. And I do remember, so we were in the corner, Joe, of the shopping center. There used to be a, a learning center, Kumon Learning Center. Right. So it's like the very corner of a shopping center. They call it the coffin corner for retail. That's where businesses go to die. I didn't know that. <laughs> I had heard so I remember one area physician walking in one day, right? I'm not open for business yet. I'm assembling desks. I'm like painting. I'm doing it all. And this area orthopedic surgeon says to me, he goes, everything that's ever been in this store has failed and you're going to fail too. And he walks out. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> like, all right, that was a little shocking. But again, a wake up call. I guess I'm not going to call on him for referrals. But <laughs> no. So I, I still laugh to that to this day. And he's, I still get referrals from him to this day. What year was that that you opened that? So 2001, it was, I signed the lease right after uh, 9-11 occurred, like wow. a couple weeks later. And that was like a pretty like unsettling time. People didn't know like, what's going to become of insurance. So it was one of those things where I was like, I can't really predict the future. I signed the lease and opened up in December of 2001. And then we were in that space for seven, eight years, moved to our current space now in Fort Washington for the last 10 years or so, 10, 11 years, opened up a second clinic in nearby Bluebell in 2014. And so, yeah, we have a you know terrific team. Can't say enough about it. That's my favorite part of the business is taking care of people and making their lives better, but also the relationships built with my colleagues. Getting back to your first clinic, what was it like actually going from an employee to having employees? What was that? Honestly, I don't know when I had my first employee, but I feel like it was me and me alone for that first three or four months. Mm-hmm. Um, so that year, I was the secretary. I was the janitor. I was doing laundry. And I was learning all sorts of new things like about billing and collections and different ins and outs of insurance companies. But once I transitioned to having a couple of employees, you realize like your your relationship, your ability to hire the right person for the right job is crucial. And to find somebody that believes in your mission. You don't want a warm body, like nobody wants that, right? So you want the right type of person to grow with. And I think I've gotten better at recognizing that over the years. I'm sure I've made my share of mistakes in the first few years, but boy, I I am lucky to be surrounded by just a killer group of colleagues that really make the business run. I feel like I have stepped back a little bit and boy, it's successful because of them and their personalities and their empathy and, and their skill sets. There's a Jack Welch quote from G that I think of every time we're about to bring someone on our, on our team. It says that hire the right person, 90% of your work is done. Hire yeah. the wrong person, 90% of your work is in front of you. <laughs> and it's so true. It is right. true. 
it is amazing. like the right person will just make your life easier make that business better. Think of things in different ways than you will. They'll complement the business. They'll make it better than you could have made it on your own. Versus one person, oh man, you're going to be tearing your hair out for sure. Uh, you hire great people and you get out of their way. That's what I yep. like to do. But so here's a, a thing I find real interesting. You basically had the guts to start something on your own. You're in the coffin corner. You already have an orthopedic surgeon telling you you're not going to succeed. You're the everything person for the first couple months. And then you're all of a sudden you start getting employees for a couple of years, six, seven, eight years in, you said, then how do you decide it's time to move? Because I think that's just as big. You see so many businesses that are successful, then they try to expand and it just doesn't work. They expand at the wrong time or to the wrong yeah. place, to the wrong scale. How did you know when it was time and how big or small you needed to go when you did that? That's an art. Yeah, that is because you don't want to bite off more than you can chew. But I guess our decision came down to we really had outgrown the space. We wanted to do more and better work. We felt like the size of the space was holding us back. The lease was coming due. I was not in love with the landlord. The, the next lease that they offered us was clearly out of market. So we just started looking for, hey, we build a base, right? We had one of the important things was, hey, I don't want to stray too far from some loyalty that I've you built over the last seven, eight years in that one location. So we didn't want to stray too far. And to your point, I didn't want to bite off too much square footage where all of a sudden I've got an albatross of rent around my neck. So, you know, it was that perfect sweet spot. We're only a mile or so, mile or two from where we were and great building, great natural light, great landlord at the time and now, but it is a bit of a leap of faith to know that, hey, we've got to develop a little bit more business to pay for this bigger space. But in the end, it was, we could see that we were being limited by where we were. And we just, we had to step out of that small area. You mentioned you were married to an OT. I happened to be married to an OT as well. It might've been our first date or second date. My wife said, do you know what an OT is? I'm like, absolutely. She goes, what's the difference between physical therapy and occupational therapy? And I failed wildly on the answer. (laughs) But if you could answer that, the difference between a PT and an OT for our listeners. Yeah, for sure. My wife would struggle with that frustration too over the years. (laughs) You PTs have marketed yourselves a little bit better. I'll use like an example of my wife worked at McGee Rehab for a number of years. After Actually, we met at Abington Hospital, and then she went on to McGee Rehab. Depending on the setting, an OT can do so many great things for a patient. But sometimes if a PT or an OT were working on, say it, the same patient together, somebody had a stroke, maybe that PT is going to be working on, working on the lower body. They may be working on leg strength, leg function, getting that person up and walking. The OT might be, hey, you know what? Let me see about your arms not moving the way it, it normally does. How, how, let me help you relearn how to get dressed or relearn how to function in your home or all those self-care things. So on that same patient, sometimes a PT and OT and even a speech therapist might all be working on that same patient, but on different equally crucial life skills or physical skills or cognitive skills even. I always think OTs are extremely function-based as are PTs, but my, my wife would would probably describe it that way. It's just uh, function-based and seeing what someone's roles were in their life before their injury or their accident and getting them back to their life's role. Could you describe what type of patients come see you? So if someone who's never consulted a physical therapist Who's your ideal patient? It's a great question. We uh, we get that a lot. We we often get the question from people like, do you guys fix this or do you treat that? And the truth is a good orthopedic PT can treat so many different things. So jokingly, we'll say our ideal patient is someone that breathes oxygen and moves because your body, my body, everybody's body is going to go through some things in this lifetime. 
that maybe it's not operating optimally. So whether that's pain or maybe a loss of mobility or you had an accident and whether that be sport related or some work related accident or just you did something at home, you don't even know what you did. We treat everything, Joe, from like headaches and neck pain and TMJ to shoulder issues, knee issues, the spine. We're often asked by people, you guys treat the spine? And we're like, holy cow, yeah, we treat the spine every day. That's the number one thing we see from herniated discs to, to, to post-operative fusions. We see knee surgeries, we see total knee replacements and hips and shoulders as well. So like literally head to toe, anything that goes wrong, a good orthopedic PT is really qualified to evaluate somebody and figure out with your help, okay, what are your deficits and where do you want to go? What are your goals? And then we come up with a roadmap to get you there. And it's a partnership. We really don't like, at least in our, in our office, we like it to be a partnership. We're not here to fix you. We're here to teach you how to heal your body and to stay. And we'll joke, we joke, we're trying to get you out of our office as fast as mm-hmm. possible, right? In a nice way. We're trying to fix you, heal you together with your help as fast as possible and to teach you things to stay out of our office if possible for the future. Now, I think PTs distinguish themselves in the medical field by the amount of patient education and the lengths to which we go to really educate our patients about how to take care of themselves and, and hopefully to stay out of our office for things that are preventable. Mm, that's a great definition. I'm going to share a little bit how you and I ran into each other. A few years back, I'm training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and heard a way too loud of a pop inside my knee during training. There's the no point, good pops. There's, there's no good pops. pops. And as you said, maybe not as, definitely not as dramatic as your knee injury in soccer where they heard it across the field. But other people training stopped training to look around to see what was that just popped. It sounded almost like a small paper bag popped. And and that was my knee. And I'm like, whoa, that was not good. Anyway, got up, fell right down. So what I realized going through that is when you have an injury that requires a surgery, that I divide it now almost like a college football game. It's two halves. The first half is about all about the surgeon. We need a very good surgeon to make sure you get the, the, the right operation, right procedure, choose the right yep, graft, absolutely. whatever you're doing. But from the moment you walk into the locker room at halftime, that means when they wheel you back home, <laughs> it's all about the PT. Yeah. 100% about the PT. I didn't realize that until I went through that process and ran into your awesome crew. Walk us through, like, you right, you just had a bad knee injury or you had a rotator cuff tear and you just had surgery. Dr. Dotson just operated on me or Dr. Sakati just operated on me. I'm fine. Now you're only halfway home. You got to bang out the PT. You got to grind. So yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, it is a process. And you're right. People come to us with different impressions of where they think they are. They may think I had that knee surgery, not in your case, an ACL. And sometimes I forget how much meniscus involvement you had. Obviously you knew you were in for a long haul. But some people do have a reasonably big surgery and they haven't been made aware of what's ahead of them. So sometimes day one, that is our job to start that process to get them to understand this is not a sprint. In their case, maybe it's a marathon, right? So you're educating the patient, trying to set some expectations, trying to get them to understand we can't go a million miles an hour in the first week. And and other people come in quite the other way. They come in and they are scared. Understandably, this is new. Let's say with an ACL, you're not going to be able to do your thing or even walk normally for weeks and months, and you're going to have some pain. And so people are pretty scared. And sometimes they're coming to us two, three, four days after surgery and they're pale and they're sweaty and they don't feel well and they're nauseous and they almost want to throw up in a trash can. And so we're helping them through that first few days 
till they get their sea legs under them. So, you know, some people you have to coach down into, hey, let's take it a little more slowly. And here's why. And other people, you have to inspire them a little bit. Hey, you're going to get there. Let's just take that first few steps. We, I, I do say as PTs, I think one of the best things you can, can be is a chameleon. You want to change your color based on you, Joe, for instance, you came into a clinic and you're an upbeat guy and you're a positive person. All we need to do is meet you there and goad you along in that direction. And maybe occasionally we had to pen you in when you wanted to go too fast, but that's great. We're going to use your strengths as a person, your personality to get the most. Somebody else comes in and they're a little scared. Hey, maybe we need to be a chameleon and meet them at that point and meet, change colors for that person so that we can meet them where they are. Uh, they're with whatever baggage they might have and then bring them along. So it's, I, I find it's always interesting to try to meet people where they are and inspire them to take that next step. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the chameleon, I love that, that analogy. And also too, I love what you mentioned, set expectations. Someone walks in and thinks maybe it's an hour of PT and they're good. Or, ah, I'll show up two, three times and I'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. You have to set that. No, this is going to take X amount of weeks or months. And so yeah. many times a, a week, and you got to set the expectations on the forefront, which is, is so important, especially because you've done this with patients a thousand times where this is their first. And then you can give them some guidelines. Hey, if it goes really well, maybe it's only going to take six, eight weeks. But the average person is probably 10, 12 weeks for a major surgery. And other times you're setting, to your point, you might get somebody that on the opposite, show, they want to stay with you forever. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you don't need PT forever. You are yeah. better. And here's how you're better. And here's how you're going to go take care of yourself. So it is interesting. Some people were, were really trying to keep them in house until they've really reached their goals and gotten out of a danger zone. And other people were trying to say, hey, it's time to fly. <laughs> it's time for you to fly out of here. You can be independent and you're pretty much fixed. Go get them. I had a number of friends blow their knee out, different knee surgeries. What I've seen in five or six different people, even though they all have known surgeons, the ones that did the full line of travel with physical therapy yeah. had the better result. I found quite a few of the people I know that had somewhat similar surgeries to yeah. go to five or six sessions. And you know what? I can do this yeah. at home. And they cut PT months or weeks short and they go, I'll do it at home. And they either don't do it at home or they do it nowhere near the level of intensity and duration they should to get the benefit. Yeah. And whether that's, sometimes that's just impatience with the process. Sometimes it's I'm tired of paying a copay. But you're right, you're shortchanging yourself because there are like subtle range of motion or strength or flexibility issues that if you don't fully recover them, you may never get them back. And so when you go off and try to go back to jujitsu or go back to basketball or whatever it is, you have this subtle underlying issue, you could hurt yourself again. So you're really not really doing yourself a disservice by not finishing completely. And you're right, when they're in our care, and they're around other patients that are exercising and going through the process. People all the time say they work at least 25 to 35% harder in the clinic than when they're on their own, when their house or their home gym. So the consistency, you have somebody watching, you have someone watching your form, pushing you to, to higher levels. Yeah, we see, it, we see it all the time. And unfortunately, it, it, sometimes it doesn't end well for that patient in terms of, to your point, not a perfect outcome. Shifting gears a bit, I want to touch base about 2020. So here you are, entrepreneur, you, you work for a corporation, you left, you mm-hmm. started your own company, you actually successful enough in the coffin corner where they're telling mm-hmm. you right off the bat, you're not going to succeed, that you find a bigger space, you open another location. Then all of a sudden, March 2020 rolls around, you have mm-hmm. COVID. 
Right. No fault of anyone's, but the mother nature, the world shuts down. A couple of questions. What goes through your mind as a business owner? And then what goes through your mind with those patients that just had surgery, like late February, early March, yeah. that need PT more than ever? If you could talk yeah. about those two things. That'd sure. Be yeah, I, I distinctly remember thinking because we decided as a group, okay, we're gonna we're gonna close it down. We did shut the the doors. I think it was March twenty third, and as you did that, you were thinking, I don't know when we're opening back up again, and how long that was gonna last. As it was, I think we probably came back about seven weeks later, seven eight weeks later. But yeah, your like your first concern is okay. I don't want anybody to get sick, patients or because nobody knew anything at that point. But then your second concern quickly becomes that person that just had the total knee replacement or the spine surgery. And so we did have a couple of PTs that went to people's homes for the most critical cases. And we're going in with the masks and the gloves in those, in those early days. And man, those guys are awesome. They were, war- they were pretty busy. So we did have some guys working, going, doing home PT. And, and for others, we were doing a little telehealth to them get by until we can open up again. Mm-hmm. Went up again probably seven, eight weeks later, and then this slow rebuild for a couple of months till we got probably back up to a break-even point again. And then people got used to living their lives again with a mask, and they knew they had to at some point take care of their health. So it was really gratifying to see, like, to get people back in the door and to help them and, and to realize, hey, this can be done. We can do this in a safe and effective manner. And But yeah, it was touch and go there for a while. Like, how long are we going to be out? And what does the future hold? And you feel bad for so many businesses, especially in the restaurant industry, the bar industry, like just wiped out. The future was in doubt. And uh, we just, we got through as a team together. Day by day, we had a lot of Zoom meetings and conversations and emails and just all stayed on the same page until we were made that decision to open up again. What's the most exciting project you're working on now? So a couple of things. One of the things I had mentioned earlier, we were doing some home PT, right? So realized, and I know over the years, I probably had discounted it, but patients had often asked us, hey, could you come to our home? And I'd say, no, we, we're just, we just do it in the clinic. Well, enough people had asked me that, you would have thought I would have seen a, an opportunity. It took till the beginning of COVID, even before COVID, we started to think about it. And then, of course, the beginning of COVID, we shut down, you know, other than a couple of PTs going out and seeing our normal patients in their homes. Then we've really seen a resurgence in it. So now I have three or four PTs that that are doing home PT. So that's been exciting for us. We took an opportunity where some of the folks we were seeing initially in home PT were scared. They were COVID afraid and, and, and rightfully so. At that point, we didn't have the vaccinations that we do today. And so it was an opportunity we took advantage of. And really, like people have been so happy to take advantage of that. They might have some some parents that they can't get rides to frequently to the clinic or some other. It's just so exhausting for this for a particular patient to get into our office and home again that it becomes too much for them. So this offers a great opportunity for us to meet people right in their home and, and take care of them there. So that's exciting. And then the other thing we got going on right now, we're actually moving our one clinic. Again, a lease came up. And we just found a better spot, better opportunity, better building, all sorts of upgrades. And so we're moving, I think, probably the beginning of August, we're moving our Bluebell Clinic just down the road of Pike. And it should be a really nice upgrade for us. That is awesome. Yeah, thanks. Shifting gears a bit, what book has influenced or changed your mind? I would say in the last five years, and I probably read the book, probably read the book five times. And I keep going back to it. I'm actually in the middle of it right now. Did you ever read The Power of Now? Oh, absolutely. Eckhart Tolle? Yeah. I'm probably in my fourth or fifth read of it. And I come back to it just because the things you learn in that book, they're so powerful, but you can't master them. Like, I don't think I'll ever master it, but 
the lessons from it in terms of how to truly try to live in the moment and put the past behind you and not project too far into the future and just really find uh, fulfillment and enjoyment in the moment. So I find I'm not much of a highlighter, but I dog ear different, (laughs) you know, but I do find I got to read it a couple of times a year just to reabsorb it because it is so powerful, but it's some of it's so deep. Like it, it takes a while for it to become a habit. And so that's a book that's really influenced me over the last three to five years. He does this great thing where I'm going to uh, crush this phrase that he had. I'm going to mess it up. When you live in the moment, there's no anxiety or depression. Because if right. you look back and you're upset of what happened in the past, you're depressed. If you look forward and you don't know what's going to happen, you get scared, you have anxiety. But if you just focus in the moment, you're yeah. living life at your best terms, you're the best yeah. version of you, and there's no anxiety and there's no depression. Yeah. And it's just you and life in front of you. Yeah. And it's so liberating. It's so freeing. And it brings out the best version of everyone. But it's so yeah. hard to do being a human being. It's so hard to do. And, and very few people probably can live in that constantly. But yeah. what I find, and maybe you would, maybe you'd agree, is that I can now recognize when I start to mm-hmm. think about some past issue or some future worry. Like I can recognize it. Like he gets into the book, like being above yourself and looking down as the thinker, like you can analyze yourself and see what your brain, because we're not our brain, we're more than that, but you can analyze yourself from above and catch yourself doing something. Like, have you ever had an argument, a pretend argument in your head with the future? Like, what is that? That's not even real, right? So if you can catch yourself at the beginning of doing that, like you can bring yourself back to the middle, back to center and just appreciate, okay, all that stuff is actually pretend. Let me just live in the moment. And it's pretty powerful. There's no dollar value that you could put on living in the present moment. Because I think we all know multimillionaires that are miserable and people that don't really have that much are the happiest people you've ever met. Like it's the power of living in the moment, which is amazing. Now, thanks for sharing that. What's the first 60 minutes of your day look like as a parent entrepreneur? I find the people's way they start their day is a cool microcosm of their life. What's the first 60 minutes look like for you? Yeah. And I think I probably owe you some thanks to that. I feel like several years ago, like I remember reading, because you had some really great stuff you used to put out on the blog and I would read that stuff. And I remember listening to how you started a day and that probably got me along the path. But what I do now is I, I try to use the morning fairly consistently to just set the rest of my day up. And how do you do that? So for me, it's now that I'm not treating patients anymore on a day-to-day basis, I don't have to be up at five in the morning. So I can get up at 6.30 and I can walk the dog and I can listen to music. And Joe, I love all sorts of music, but maybe one day you're feeling a little, you don't have the energy. So you'll put on music that'll change your energy or you're feeling too jacked up and you got too many things in your head. So maybe I'll put on music that sort of brings you down a notch, or maybe I'll, I won't put any music on at all. And I'll listen to how many different types of birds can I hear, or I can see the breeze moving the leaves at the top of a tree or the smell of the the latest flower that's blooming. And really just try to focus in on the sounds around me and to center yourself. And what what I find, if if I can do that pretty consistently, just sets the rest of your day up better because we all have too many things to do. And as a parent or as a business owner or whatever you do for work, you have so many things pulling you in different directions. But if you can start your day off with some peace and um, some serenity, or at least establish a baseline off which the rest of your day can operate, I I just find I'm much more relaxed. I have much more perspective and it's a great way to start the day. When the morning and the rest of the day follows. Yeah. Really does. When you are at your best, 
what are you doing? Two things. Professionally, when I'm at my best, you're hearing everything from your, your colleagues, your coworkers, your employees. I don't view myself as the boss. I view myself as their coworker. I'm really trying to support. They are the business at this point. I'm not the business. So when I'm in the moment, professionally, I feel like I am supporting them, allowing them to do the great work that they do. And sometimes that's administrative stuff. And sometimes that's something in the clinic needs to be fixed. It could be that simple. I'm a list guy. So I might have a million lists and they're cut down into subcategories of things I'm doing for the for my coworkers and things I'm doing for patients. I'm usually really energized by making my workplace the best it can be for my patients and my coworkers. And then from a personal perspective, not my best when I find that sort of inner peace, that calm, that serenity, anything that comes at me, I feel like I can deal with. And so that just makes me the best version of myself as a dad or, a, or as a husband or as a friend. When you can take care of yourself, find some inner peace, then you can be there not only for yourself, but for other people. What is your personal definition of success? You know what? It's probably changed as I've gotten older. For me, it's I want to be the best dad I can or the best friend I can and the best spouse that I can be. And when I can find some inner peace where you're content with your life, but you're not complacent, where you have some work-life balance. I do love the challenge of work, but I love the challenge of trying to be a better person, a better dad, a better spouse, a better friend. I never want to think like I've ever mastered it because you never will. But I think that work-life balance and finding some inner peace and um, contentment, it, it truly is what makes me feel a success. What values do you try to pass on to your kids? So in our house, now we pass by it probably a million times. We have this mission statement we put up. You know, it's the Seabrook family mission statement. It gets into respecting others as well as yourself, seeking balance and perspective in all things. Living a simple, prioritized lifestyle might be listening more, but judging less. Trying to avoid complacency, whether it be in your work or in your relationships. Being patient and kind and empathetic to not only others, but also to yourself. I want my kids to live a life where they have few regrets at the end of it. Mm -hmm. Things you've done or haven't done. You should laugh as often as you can at yourself and just be approach life with some confidence and some optimism. And gosh, there's so many lessons you try to teach your kids. And when they're at their most receptive and in their teenage years, sometimes that's the time they least want to be like listening to you. But I think eventually it'll all seep in. They're great kids. If you could go back and talk to those people sitting around that dinner table when you were 10 years old, what would you want to tell them? Knowing what I know now, I would go back and two things come to mind right away. One, you would express your gratitude more often. I listen to my parents. I respect my parents. Probably could have spent more time expressing gratitude. And secondly, just recognizing that they're just human beings, right? People are just trying to live their best life and raise their kids the best they could. And I realized this late in my parents' lives. We're probably a little too judgmental of your own parents growing up. God, you pick on every little thing that they did wrong. And just to be more forgiving as a 10-year-old through my teenage years in terms of any flaws that they might have had probably would be a nice way to, to go back and spend time. Last question. If you had to get a quote or a motto tattooed on your body, <laughs> what would that quote or motto say? Oh, man. I love quotes. I have a million of them, and they're a great attitude adjustment. They're in a few sentences, you get wisdom, I and mean, you get perspective, and some of them are too long to tattoo. There's one I have that I put on my office. It was a picture of a lion out in the plains, and all it said was, take a deep breath 
and remember who the bleep you are. Take a deep breath and remember who the bleep you are. Every once in a while, you get too wrapped up in problems or concerns or I should do this or do that. Take a deep breath. Remember who the heck you are. That is about as good of a spot to end as any. Matt Seabrook, first off, thank you for joining us today. Joe, thanks for having me. I, honestly, I've listened to all the episodes of this podcast. You're a great interviewer. You really ask interesting penetrations. You put people at ease. Your natural sense of optimism and exuberance comes through. I know you personally, but that will come through regardless. And hopefully in my case with this interview, you're a good editor. <laughs> well, I'd like to thank you for after two different knee surgeries and your crew is so good. When I walk on the jiu-jitsu mat or I'm, I'm cutting and playing a sport in the backyard with my kids, I don't even think of all the injuries I have because I'm completely healed. Thanks to good surgeons and amazing PT. It's an honor. It, it truly is an honor to take care of people's health. And when we have people like you in the clinic with all that energy and enthusiasm, it just makes our, our job that much easier. So if people are looking for you and your clinic online, where yeah. can they find you online? Yeah. We recently upgraded our website. It's uh, dresherpt.com. And you can probably find us on, I'm sure, Facebook and Instagram. Just search in Dresher PT and under Matt Seabrook on LinkedIn. Awesome. Matt Seabrook of Dresher Physical Therapy. Thank you. It was great to speak with you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for all your help and much appreciated, buddy. Awesome. Hey, Joe, thank you. And best of luck to you going forward and continue good luck with your podcast. You're killing it. Thanks. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.